greener on the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries on 95.5 WSB. And a good Saturday morning to you. Welcome to Green and Growing. You know it's right here from 6 to 9 every Saturday, unless there's an early kickoff with the University of Georgia Bulldogs. We are here for three hours with you, and I welcome your calls. There's a lot to be doing outside, a lot of questions you all have. And really good questions at that. 404-872-0750. So much to get to in today's show. Um, Reverting back to the Facebook page, though, if you have not already liked or followed the Facebook page, search Facebook for Green and Growing WSB. And I'll tell you, the, the two top posts that I've done in three years both came this past week. I mean to tell you, huge. The first one I'll get to in just a minute, the biggest one. The second largest was the announcement of meteorologist Glenn Burns announcing his retirement from Channel 2 after 40 years. So the voice you just heard, give the weather, uh, Brad Nitz in for Christina Edwards this weekend. Yeah, he is new chief meteorologist for Channel 2 WSB-TV and so happy for him. That's been a long time coming, but it's just one of those things I never thought Glenn Burns would retire. Uh, 40 years, I am almost 40 years old, so that is the only meteorologist I've known most of my life on Channel 2 and my family. I grew up watching WSB TV. So very happy for him. And it was really a treat to hear him come on Mark Aram's show um, on Thursday afternoon to after his announcement to kind of, you know, rehash some memories and things with Mark. So congratulations to Glenn. So me sharing that news in a fantastic photo of faces you recognize, Glenn with John Pruitt, who just wrote a book, Tell It True, Monica Kaufman Pearson, busy as she's ever been. I think she just turned 75. And Chuck Dowdle, of course, still working with the University of Georgia Bulldogs. But those four are my childhood from Channel 2. So uh, take a sneak pick, uh, a, a sneak peek at that picture and wish uh, Glenn well in his retirement. Now, he is not finished until November 22nd. At that time, during the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, the new chief, Brad Nitz, will take over. So second most popular post on Facebook, and I didn't think anything of it. It was a picture from last year, but it was relevant because these flowers were out and about again. It was the cosmos, these purple stringy flowers along the roadside, right? So I saw them up uh, 575 at exit 9, Ridgewalk Parkway. They were at a couple other exits as well. And got out, actually, uh, near Rope Mill Park and took this picture last year, but they were just as beautiful this year for about five or six weeks from September into about mid-October when we had that cold snap. And holy cow, about 800 of you uh, liked that photo, about 80 comments on it, how you've seen wildflowers, cosmos, and I applauded the Georgia Department of Transportation for making that possible. Folks saw them all the way from Cornelia to Woodstock and along I-16 outside of Savannah and down to Columbus. They were pretty uh, showy on 185 as well. So I'm really glad when something like that happens and trends and really hits an interest because that makes me think, okay, that's something I'm going to talk about on the show. People are really interested in growing wildflowers, how you cultivate that, how you prepare the soil. The biggest question was seed mixes, right? Well, where do I get the seed? What do I need? What do I buy? Is it a pre-mixed thing? Do I buy multiple different packets? So I got you covered. At 630, I'm going to talk to Bodie Panisi from the University of Georgia. She works down at the Griffin campus uh, in the horticulture and agriculture department for University of Georgia. She's right at the same campus as Clint Waltz, who was on a couple weeks ago. 
Uh, but we'll be talking to Bodie, and she will cover everything you need to know, as well as, uh, you know, she's, she's thrown in a couple of extra nuggets, things that I just never would have thought of, never would have known. So stay tuned for that at 6.30 if you have any interest in wildflowers. 404-872-0750. And this may be the last weekend where you're going to enjoy that beautiful leaf color for fall. So Seth Hawkins with the Georgia Forestry Commission will come along at 7.20 as he has all month in October uh, to really keep us up to date on where the prettiest views are. And I think anywhere in Metro Atlanta right now is just absolutely gorgeous. You could look down one street and see three different colors right there, a green tree, a yellow tree, and a red tree. And I think the really showy ones, aside from a maple, or the, well, the Japanese maple, but a sugar maple. A sugar maple are the really, really tall ones. They were half green, half red for a while, but now they are pretty much 80 to 90% red, and they're just fire engine red, absolutely beautiful trees. So we'll be on the lookout for that and what Clint or uh, what Seth says we should watch out for. So one of the things I wanted to cover found an interesting article from uh, Fox 13, which is the affiliate uh, down in Tampa Bay, wrote a really interesting article with the help of uh, the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. And such an important study being done. Um, assessments are still being made and, and damages are still being calculated, unfortunately, from Hurricane Ian which happened back on September 28th, but it's incredible. It's astounding to think what all was lost on that west coast of Florida when Hurricane Ian made landfall. $1.5 billion in estimated losses for the entire state's agricultural industry, and you can imagine how crippling that would be if that happened to the farmers here in middle Georgia and south Georgia. Um, obviously, one of the things that's going to be most affected are citrus crops as well, but listen to the damages here, what we're going to lose. And, and I was at Kroger the other day and noticed um, fruits and vegetables were kind of sparse. And I don't know if now we're just starting to see the impacts of that or if that may be due to something else. But I think that's probably something that'll carry over for the next few months. If you uh, you know feel yourself getting aggravated, take a deep breath and realize it's, it's really not the situation that anybody wants. Uh, if you're not able to find the things in the grocery store that you want, this very well could be a big reason why. Vegetables and melons, about $3 million. They're still calculating, but $3 million lost there. Citrus, a little less than $3 million. A horticultural crops, I mean, think of all the greenhouses and things that are there. $250 million lost. And beef and dairy, this was sad. Less than $2 million, but still a huge number lost. Uh, cows can't withstand the winds and the flooding. I mean, a lot of them knocked out with flying debris during the hurricane. Obviously, farmers are not able to move them as easily as you could transport your pet or a few horses or something. Cows are a whole other thing. So um, it's just, it's, it's astounding. So someone from the University of Florida, the Food Impact Analysis and Economic Analysis Program, made a statement, and I thought this was pretty telling. Our preliminary estimate is a range, a wide range, to account for many of the unknowns, but what isn't destroyed may have diminished yield or quantity, which will not be apparent for weeks or months, and then even more effects can appear in the long term. So a lot of you ask similar questions when there's a frost, right? Well, I want to know, did my hydrangea get bit by the frost? Did my new tree get bit by the frost? A lot of times there's a delayed reaction. You're not going to see right away. Um, the damage to the citrus crops, he says, will depend on the level of fruit drop, the damage to the branches, the impacts of the heavy flooding, and how quickly the water was able to recede. So a lot of it's not yet known. Uh, so we could really see that impact in the coming months to even year. And something, too, they're thinking the Florida citrus 
crops for 2022-23 within the next year could have the potential to see the lowest citrus production since the Great Depression. So that's really something to think about. Still continue to say your prayers for our friends down on the south, uh, the southernmost border of Georgia and Florida. So keep up with that. Maybe a little less oranges, lemons. But you know what? You can grow your own lemons. That's kind of fun. Some of you call about Myers Lemon Trees. Anything you have in the house, anything you have questions about growing, something you want to try for the first time, you and I can certainly learn together. 404-872-0750. Um, a really good visit two weeks ago with Clint Waltz from the University of Georgia Turfgrass Specialist. So much so, I loved our conversation, and a lot of the great content we were able to discuss was based on your calls. You had great questions about some of the things to do with your grasses and lawns right now. So with the transition and season, boy, those questions come. Um, so some of the things that I took away from that conversation with Clint, if you missed it, you're able to go back on wsbradio.com slash green and growing. And right there um, on my homepage under On Demand, you can go back and listen to each hour of every show uh, so you'll see from 10.15, hours 2 and 3 is when Clint Waltz joined me in the 7 and 8 o'clock hours. But first of all, he gave some good news for homeowners with a fescue lawn, right? It's still not too late to overseed. The window is closing. Maybe mid-November is going to be when you really want to have that done by. Um, and as you prepare, he recommends to first mow down the tall fescue you've got. That opens the canopy up. The shorter blades of grass mean the seed can drop down to the soil a little bit easier Seed-to-soil contact is so important, and we're going to learn that with not only uh, grass seed, but installing these wildflowers, too. The, the seeds have to come in good contact with the soil, be pushed in, raked in, something like that, just so that they're going to uh, be able to germinate more quickly. They could germinate as quickly as five to seven days um, from when you put the seed down. And Clint made a great point about irrigation, uh, Two two great points, actually. One, you irrigating with sprinklers and things may be a little bit better for the new seed rather than rainfall because the rain can move the seed around. And then you're going to get one lush patch of fescue here and a bare spot here, and that's going to have to do with the rain. So you can do it right now. Uh, rain's in the forecast tomorrow, but we'll see how heavy it is. Um, consistent irrigation is going to keep that seed uniform. And then the other great point is I loved this. He said, it doesn't have a pause button. Germination does not have a pause button. The seed has to be kept wet, which is a great point. So you're all gung-ho the first week or two after you've laid seed down, and you're really good, really religious about getting the sprinkler out there every four, five, six days. And then all of a sudden we kind of stop, right, after maybe two weeks. Um, and, and we cannot do that. We've got to keep consistent moisture. If you're going to spend the time and the money, make the investment for grass seed, uh, germination, there is no pause button, which I love that point. And then also things to not do, which was this was a good conversation. People calling with their warm season grasses, freaking out about the striping, they're changing color, they're going dormant. That's perfectly not normal. And one thing you don't have to do with the warm season lawn right now is fertilize it. Since they're going dormant, they don't really have that uptake of nutrients as quickly. So don't feel pressure to apply a winterizer product, he says. So you're going to go in the big box stores, maybe some of the nurseries, and see a winterizer product that says it's it's got everything, right? It's got all this stuff in it, plus something with high nitrogen, that first number um, in fertilizer. And he said that's that's not going to be what you need. If anything, maybe a fertilizer high in potassium, and that's the last number, um, that could help with disease prevention and winter hardiness if you are just itching to do some kind of fertilizer application. So one last thing Clint said, you can solve about 80% of your turf problems with two things. One is the right plant for the right place, 
and the other is site prep. So really, really good takeaways from our friend Clint Waltz at the University of Georgia. I invite you to call about grasses, your lawns, what you want to do to them right now, anything else in the landscape, 404-872-0750. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on 95.5 WSB. It's Scott Slade, host of Atlanta's Morning News on 95.5 WSB. The news, weather, and traffic team will be here first thing Monday morning to help you get back to work on time and informed. Now back to Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca on 95.5 WSB, Atlanta's News and Talk. All right, if you're just waking up with me, good morning. 53 degrees here in Midtown Atlanta today. The high is going to be 67. It's going to be a pleasant day, a little bit overcast, though. I'm thankful for that. I'm going on a tour of Oakland Cemetery. Woohoo, spooky. Two days before Halloween. And tomorrow, the shower and the storms come in. Uh, high dips down to about 63 and lows in the mid-50s. Green, green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. All right. So maybe if you're in and out of the rain tomorrow, don't know exactly what time it's going to come in, but Brad Nitz will tell you here in less than 10 minutes. But plant spring flowering bulbs. You've got a wide window now to do that and get those things ready. Number two, this is from the city of Alpharetta. I liked this. They encourage residents to avoid costly repairs due to cracked water pipes. When the weather gets colder, these are some things you really need to be on top of. Draining the water from outdoor sprinkler supply lines. Don't put antifreeze in those. That's just silly. We all know that. Uh, remove, drain, and store the hoses that are used outside. So you're still going to need those for a little bit. I think really the only rain in the forecast is like on Sunday. And also just making sure that you can insulate pipes that are exposed. Uh, Use a pipe sleeve or UL listed heat tape on those. And they say a few inexpensive acts right now can help homeowners avoid costly repairs down the road. Totally agree. And number three, start working to eliminate invasive vines like kudzu, poison ivy, English ivy, Uh, That Virginia creeper is really starting to look pretty with some red color with the five leaves, but that's kind of going nuts as well. Uh, All those are more susceptible to chemical control this time of year. So you may need to do repeat applications if you're going to get to those like BioAdvance Brush Killer, Ortho Ground Clear. And my friend Christy Bryant, owner of Speaking for the Trees, posted a good video a couple of years ago, but we've reshared it because her looking out and seeing all this English ivy overtaking the trees, and it's doing a lot more damage than you think. It may look cool, but there's a really, really good reason. Actually, she gives you a number of reasons why you need to take that off of the trees. So watch that video on my Facebook page, um, and you will be enlightened. And you really need to go up the tree from the base of the trunk, maybe three feet or so, and cut around that ivy. Cut it at the top of that three feet. Cut it down at the base to give kind of a wide gap to where it's not going to keep growing up the tree. Coming up, we're going to have a conversation with Bodie Panisi from the University of Georgia Agriculture and Horticulture Department about wildflowers. I'm pretty sure all of your questions are answered. I want to say good morning to Paulette, who checked in on Facebook, and Matt and Holly. And hopefully I'll see your name pop up there in the break. 404-872-0750. It's Green and Growing. It's Saturday morning on 95.5 WSB. Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. 
and good morning. It is the second half of hour number one on Green and Growing. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you have plans for a fantastic weekend. So I got to tell you, I never run out of topics and ideas for the show. I always come across really cool things. And about a week ago on the Facebook page, when you search Facebook, Green and Growing, WSB, I posted a picture of Cosmos, some wildflowers growing alongside the interstate. And I was, you know, mentioning and kind of giving a pat on the back to the Georgia Department of Transportation. They've they've made great efforts with wildflowers, and a lot of folks are seeing those along the roadside. People commented from Cornelia to Savannah to Columbus and all in between. That Facebook post got more interactions than most things I do, over 600 likes, about 80 comments. And I thought, okay. I've struck a nerve here with some of the Green and Growing listeners, and I'm so glad. So I was able to reach out to a professor at the College of Agriculture and Horticulture in the department at the University of Georgia, Bodhi Panisi. Good morning, Bodhi. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm so glad Becky Griffin got us in touch with one another. Um, and this is a fantastic topic, and it's something you know a lot about and you're very passionate about. So first of all, you know, you may not be able to speak directly to Georgia Department of Transportation's Wildflower Initiative and all that they're doing there, but you know a little bit about something that they had interactions with and a little bit of research through UGA, right? Yes, I have. The Department of uh, Transportation has had many uh, projects over the years, even before I joined University of Georgia, which now is, well, more than 20 years ago. And uh, wildflowers and beautification of roadsides uh, along state highways and, and interstates, you know, in other states, that has certainly always been something that people have wanted to do and have tried to do. The challenges in those landscapes is the fact that you have limited accessibility. You can't get people to go and uh, maintain those on a regular basis, and there is a lot of input whenever there is a vegetation of any kind. But those are wonderful habitats, and they're not only very highly visible, but they serve as uh, resources for um, insects and a refuge for many, many different sorts of wildlife. Uh, including the plants that uh, we grow in those habitats. So whenever we try to have these uh, installed wildflowers, um, these can be native species or they can be some non-native species. Cosmos, although it's wonderful, gorgeous plant, it's not a native species to Georgia. And uh, it is one that is very widely used in those mixes because, again, as your listeners and watchers saw, they're very visible. You can really see it from a distance. And they're easy to germinate, so that makes them very quick to work with. You get quick results from a a plant such as Cosmos. As far as what it provides for uh, insects and why we care about this is simply because biodiversity is something that we should all deeply care about and try to promote and help as much as we can, whether it's on the roadside or in our little patch of the yard. Um, For years, I have been working with colleagues and industry and um, just anyone interested to try to learn as much as possible about native plants and and non-native plants that can serve us floral resources, as we call them, for pollinators and other beneficial insects to grow some of those native plants and plant more of them, learn how to manage the habitat so that they are uh, more um, widespread and acceptable and so that we can all help nature in that respect. 
in regards to the Cosmos, I know folks started noticing those along the roadsides, perhaps popping up about September, lasted a good maybe five to six weeks. And I'm glad you're mentioning the environmental benefits um, of these wildflower patches, or even if you just did a, a small little portion in your own landscape, as far as pollinators go. Are there any benefits as far as birds? And what about soil stabilization? What do wildflowers do for those two things? Just like any vegetation, when you have some plant that is holding the soil in place, the roots of that plant are going to be holding the soil particles together. And this is a very interesting interaction between uh, the roots of the plants, the microorganisms that dwell in the soil, the uh, larger organisms. um, They could be insects, they can be small vertebrates, there could be lots and lots of interesting organisms. And all of them work together to hold the soil and to work it and to recycle nutrients and hold moisture and just be really, really good for the health of that um, that environment. And so what we call this is like a soil health approach to um, you know, using plants and then the community of organisms that come with that plant. So it goes so much past just beautification. There's so many more benefits, Bodhi, as you mentioned. Um, for someone who is interested in doing this in their own landscape, they may have a small patch they're able to do it in. They may have some acreage. What would the smallest area be that you would recommend someone give this a try? And then what kind of seeds? Like, how do we even go about finding a native wildflower mix that's right for the southeast? The easiest thing to do is to start small if you don't know much about plants in general or flowers and you really just want to try and you don't want to go out in a major way. I suggest you start either in a container, some small container, or you can go into something, say, you know, um, five by five square feet or three by feet. The size really doesn't matter as much as long as you follow what you are going to do is just extrapolate and make it larger as your interest and in your space allows. Uh, But first, we are to uh, prepare the soil. We have to remove any vegetation that is currently present at that location. And I say you choose a sunny site with well-drained soil. That location then has to have to clear the soil from any kind of thatch, any kind of previous green material, you have to remove that and expose the soil because that is going to be the soil bed where the seeds, the wildflower seeds, are going to germinate. Yeah, and we don't want any competition, right? I mean, the more weeds that we have that are going to grow in that spot, they're going to compete with the wildflowers, right? Exactly. So we clear this, and that can be cleared in a variety of ways. I prefer to use non-chemical ways, but if people want a quick and you know, accessible, then that chemicals are the, the fastest way to get rid of some of that vegetation. But say that you want to go the non-chemical or the um, environmentally conservative way, that is to use solarization. And solarization is literally steaming the soil, oh. raising the temperature up about 140 degrees. And that's in the summer, you put in clear plastic and you seal the area. So it does take a little bit of preparation and thinking ahead of time. And ideally, you'd start at least ahead of time planning and making sure that you have all your tasks ahead of time and you have all the materials that you need and then you choose the right environmental conditions. So once that's achieved, then you have to physically remove the dead material, say that you have some vegetation that is left there. So you have to either rake that area or if you have a larger area in the uh, covenants where you live around, um, allow you can burn the site, which is something that they do on farms. 
and that removes very quickly that vegetation that is that is left. And then small raking of the area. And if it's a very, very compact soil, you have to loosen this. So cooty packing and making sure that you break the clods are important. The seeding itself, as far as timing goes, you can go anywhere between, um, you know, November through March, depending where in the state. Wow. Um, and some research has shown um, that um, spring planting, spring seeding, um, you know, February, March is, is better than fall seeding. Um, but I have had success with fall seeding as well. The important thing to recognize is not to allow that seed to be to run off because the longer the seed stays on the ground, the higher the chance that it's going to be uh, run off with, with strong water. So we're trying to prevent this. So making sure that as you're seeding, you're also pushing the seed slightly down about you know half an inch down in the soil. And that's where the cooty packing part. Just like we talk about fescue and overseeding the lawn this time of year for fescue, that seed to soil contact is so important, Bodie, like you're saying, so that it doesn't wash away, so that it's able to germinate and develop strong roots. Now, say that we get a variety of seeds, you know, a wildflower mix, um, and we plant that February, March, perhaps. Are some of those going to be popping up at different times for us? You're correct. There are some that are cool season plants. So those are the ones that we uh, would probably try to do plant in the, or seed in the, in, the, in the fall. And then the warm season ones, which are better match for the spring. However, some people mix them all together and then you just put them at one time because that's, if you have a mix, that's pretty much what you have to do. It's either one or the other. And as far as mixes go, the National Resource and Conservation Service figured out what are the best mixes and how to do um, those mixes as far as seed selections and to make sure that uh, they're the right community of plants for uh, health of the soil and, and the planting itself. Um, they do recommend that there are at least um, nine species of plants oh, wow. in the mix. Uh, nitrogen fixers, so you're looking at something that is a bean plant. Uh, in the like think peas and beans, uh, those fix nitrogen in their roots, and they are very important to help with the nitrogen content in natural fertilizer in the soil. So three of the seeds or species ideally would be uh, beans. So things like uh, partridge pea, which is um, a very cute annual, warm season annual that really native plant, really great from seed. But in addition to that, there should be some uh, grass seed in there because grasses and forbs are kind of like partners. They really need to be together for a healthy habitat to establish well. Bodhi Panisi with the University of Georgia with the types of species seeds you need in your wildflower mixes. We'll get right back to that. Plus the top three things to do in the landscape this weekend. Stay tuned. It's 95.5 WSB. It's Scott Slate. Did you know you can listen to Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca on Saturday mornings on your smart speaker? And me too, weekday mornings. Just tell your smart speaker, play 95.5 WSB, and we're on. 95.5 WSB, Atlanta's news and talk. Here's Ashley. The update on your weekend weather could be rainy, brought to you by Finley Roofing. So getting back to my conversation with Bodie at the University of Georgia about wildflower seeds. Are most of these wildflower mixes going to be annuals to where we just get it that one time and then it's done? Many of the mixes actually have annuals and perennials. So um, the conventional wisdom goes that the first year you'll get flowers and quick establishment from the annuals. And the perennials are going to just put out vegetative growth that is only green mass. 
and then the next year they will flower and start bulking up. For us in Georgia, we do have some perennial species that will bloom the first year after planting. So, yes, a combination of annuals and perennials is uh, important for the long-term maintenance of that uh, habitat. Some of the best species that have been shown from research in Georgia and other places, and personally, my, my favorite is the swell, and I do have a long list, so I'm just going to give you some of the top <laughs> sure. ones. Black-eyed Susan, oh, um, yeah. swamp milkweed. I think milkweeds are very important to include. Again, many of your listeners are people that know about monarchs and the plight of the monarchs, so planting a milkweed is, is very, very important to save those wonderful creatures. But there's also butterfly milkweed, which is personally my favorite. Indian grass is known to, to uh, establish well along the wildflowers. Also, landleaf coreopsis, uh, wild bergamot, as I mentioned, partridge peas. A very important part in many of these uh, mixes is to have a at least one mint, preferably a couple of mints, oh. but also a couple of asters. So when people are looking for mixes, again, beans, asters, and mints, and then grasses, that's your winning combination there. Bodhi Panisi, thank you very, very much for taking the time to educate my listeners on wildflowers. I guarantee you, this time next year, we will see it doubled with folks trying it in their own landscapes. Your, your advice was wonderful. Thank you so much. Best of luck and happy growing. Green, Green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. I hope you were excited by that conversation and learned as much as I did. Now, like I told Bodie, I do expect to see a lot more wildflowers come this time next year. All right, for this weekend, number one, if you can get in and out of the rain, plant spring flowering bulbs. Number two, start working to eliminate those invasive vines like kudzu and poison ivy and English ivy. They are more susceptible to chemical control this time of year, but repeat applications of something like BioAdvanced Brush Killer or ortho ground clear is going to be necessary. And number three, the city of Alpharetta, they posted something encouraging residents to avoid costly repairs due to cracked water pipes, right? When the temperatures go down, you need to start thinking about draining the water from your outdoor sprinkler supply lines and also remove, drain, and store your hoses. Open up the valves of those outdoor hose bibs and block them and insulate them as well. And consider installing specific products made to insulate the water pipes like a pipe sleeve or UL-listed heat tape on exposed water pipes. They say, quote, a few inexpensive acts now can help homeowners avoid costly repairs down the road. All right, I invite you to call in 404-872-0750. And coming up at 720 in the next hour, Seth Hawkins with the Georgia Forestry Commission and an update on those beautiful fall leaves. Next, all that coming up on Green and Growing. 